Genesis 2. So last week we looked at Genesis 1, the theological doctrine of creation, what it means that God created the world out of nothing, and what, that, you know, what the implications are for that are of that for us, God's, God's creatures. In the coming weeks, we're going to look through the rest of the uh, chapters of, of Genesis. We're going to look at the fall and the flood, uh, the Tower of Babel, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and kind of some of the events uh, and stories that happened in their lives and what we can kind of, uh, you know, how that set the stage for the Messiah, for Jesus. This morning, however, we're going to look at God's special creation of humanity. And uh, look at the tail end of Genesis 1, where we see humanity created in God's image, and then the better part of Genesis chapter 2, where we see Adam and Eve uh, kind of in the, in the garden. So I'm going to read Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31, and then I'm going to skip to Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, and we'll cover that entire chapter from there, from there on out. And we'll pray and get going. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It's given in chapter chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight for food for, and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to, the, to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she will be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for creating us out of nothing in your image. We thank you for speaking to us and revealing yourself to us through your word. We pray that you would meet us here and bless us this morning as we read and consider and and meditate on your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so starting right at the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God made, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God's finished creating everything else. Uh, He's finished ordering everything else, heavens, earth, sky, Sea, vegetation, birds, fish, animals, and now kind of the the apex of his creative work. God creates humanity, specifically in his image, after his likeness. Human beings, who we are, and and, our nature, our capacities, our abilities is is meant to be, it was created to be a a glimmer of who God is, in, in a way that's unique from and distinct from everything else in in creation, right? You I mean, everything in creation is meant to testify to the glory of God. It's meant to kind of point to the glory of God. Um, you know, look at a tree and, and look at how impressive it is or how complex it is. Root systems, you know, photosynthesis, all these processes. It's, it's, it's meant to, uh, you know, the, the beauty, the way the color, the leaves change colors. Everything in all of creation is meant to point to and testify about its creator. But humanity uh, is distinct in that it does it. You know, trees uh, reflect the glory of God just by existing. But humanity, human beings have a deeper capacity than anything else in all creation where we can, can and are called to reflect the glory of God. You know, we have intellect, emotion, will. We can appreciate things that are true and beautiful and, and good. Uh, in, you know, human beings can reflect specific attributes of God, his holiness, his love, his justice, his mercy, his faithfulness, his patience, right? Human, like, human beings like God, God has just spent day after day after day creating and making and ordering and kind of, God is expressing his creativity. Human beings like God are creative, art, music, architecture. I mean, even, you know, everyday things like storytelling or, or baking, right? Like, like human beings are inherently creative and that's meant to, that's a reflection of God who himself is creative. God is our creator. So unlike anything else in creation, human beings are created in God's image and more so than anything else in creation, human beings are made to reflect God's glory and to, to point to it. 
And he says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, so the, the, the system that's being set up is God himself is the, the high king. God is not part of the creation. God is the creator. There's a distinction there. God's the king. God rules over everything. God is sovereign. But God makes humanity in his image, and humanity, as a result, is kind of um, tasked with ruling over creation on behalf of God, in God's place. God is the king. Humanity is God's vice regent, right? Someone who rules in his, his place. God kind of makes, makes Adam, he makes humanity the, the deputy king who is supposed to rule over creation like God does. And then in verse 27, we see that God has firmly set this image not just on, um, on men, not just on males, but on males and females, both created in the image of God, equally create, you know, are of equal value and dignity and, and worth before, uh, before God. Males aren't created more in the image of God than females. Males aren't higher than females. All human beings bear God's image. In verses 28 to 31, we see what God calls humanity to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So Eden, for this brief period in time, is kind of functioning as um, an intersection between heaven and, and earth, right? God lives in heaven. God's glory and his presence dwells in heaven, and earth is God's creation. But Eden is almost this intersection where God lives there, God dwells there, God's glory is there, and it's here on earth, similar to how the temple would function throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament. Adam is almost a, an archetypal priest. Eden is the first temple. Adam is the first priest, and God says, I want this, this Edenic, like this kind of beautiful uh, existence, I want this to characterize not just the Garden of Eden where earth and heaven are intersecting, I want it to characterize all of creation. I want, I want the Garden of Eden and everything that is beautiful in it to be everywhere on the earth. I want it to, to fill the earth. And so in order to do that, Adam, I want you to cultivate that which is uncultivated. I want you to extend the borders of this garden until it covers the entire world. Take dominion of the uncultivated lands, expand the sanctuary, and as you do, I want you to fill the sanctuary with more image-bearing priest kings like yourself. It's kind of what we, what we see God tasking humanity with in Genesis chapter 1. And God sees that it's very good. At every other step of the creation, he sees that it's good. In, in the sixth day, he says that it's very good. So God is very pleased with humanity that he has created in his image. We skip to chapter 2, verse 4. We see these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and, and the earth. So this is a, chapter 2 is going to be kind of a zoomed in, uh, you know, from a different perspective and with additional detail kind of narrative or, or, or kind of look at what happens on day 6 when God creates humanity. Interestingly, in all of chapter 1, uh, we're using one specific name for God, and that's Elohim. Kind of the generic term for God as a transcendent creator, right? The word Elohim means God, 
uh, you know, made you, but you may or may not have access to him. He is the sovereign creator that is distinct from and separate from his creation. You owe him your worship, but he is transcendent. He's out there. He is the, the God of all creation, and you, you, know, you are not him. You are beneath him. That's kind of what Elohim, that's everything that's packaged into the name Elohim. But starting in chapter 2, uh, it's the, the name Yahweh, in the day that the Lord God uh, made the heavens and the earth. So we're going to see that name repeated over in chapter 2, which is a more personal, kind of more intimate name for God, right? Uh, the name that God specifically gives to his people. Uh, instead of the transcendent creator who created everything, uh, the name Yahweh means more, um, you know, the, the God who exists in and of himself uh, and, and who uh, knows you personally and knows you intimately and cares about you. And so all of creation we see in chapter 1 knows God as the sovereign creator God, but God's people specifically we see in chapter 2 know God as the Lord, my God. Right? There's kind of a possessive, the Lord, my God. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So uh, the, the verses 5 and 6 and 7 are kind of meant to, uh, specifically they're arranged in these kind of uh, dyad structures. So there's a twofold problem. There's no bush of the field was in the land and no small plant. So two different Hebrew words for two different kinds of, of vegetation. We already, have, we already have kind of generic, uncultivated vegetation out in the world. We saw that back on day three of creation in Genesis 1. But this is referring specifically to two kinds of cultivated vegetation that are necessary for food for humanity. Larger plants and smaller plants. So like bushes and shrubs are the larger plants and, and grass and herbs are the smaller plants. So he's setting up a twofold problem. Uh, there's no larger plants, no smaller plants that has a twofold cause, um, which is uh, the latter half of verse 5, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So the, two, the twofold cause is no water and no cultivator. So no big bushes, no small bushes, basically no food. And the, the, the cause is no water and no cultivator. So then in verse 6, we're going to see a solution to the first uh, cause. And a mist was coming up from the ground that was watering the whole face of the ground. And so um, some, some translators translate this word mist as rain cloud. So they say what's happening in verse 6 is there was no water. Uh, there was no rain, and so God made rain. He made uh, a rain cloud kind of rise up through evaporation and the, you know, the, the water cycle, and then it started raining from that point forward. Or some say it was more of a supernatural, almost like streams of water were kind of coming up out of the bubbling brooks and springs where God was supernaturally watering the ground that way. We, either way, I'm not sure which it is, but, but either way, there's a twofold problem of no uh, food. There's a twofold cause, no water, no cultivator. There's a twofold solution which one is God provides water in verse 6. And then the, the second part of the twofold solution is that God provides a cultivator in verse 7. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living creature. Twofold problem, twofold cause, twofold solution. 
And then kind of verse 8 kind of summarizes everything that we've seen thus far. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. That's the vegetation. That's the, that's the, the you know, the wild, that's the plants. And there he put the man that he had formed. That's the, that's humanity, the cultivator. So it's restating what we've seen in verses 5, 6, and 7. And then verse 8 is going to be kind of explained and extrapolated in the verses that follow. So the first half of verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, that's going to be explained and expounded on in verses 9 through 14, right? God makes the uh, spring to spring up so that every tree that's pleasant for sight and good for food. There was the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, in verses 15 and, or, yeah, verses um, 10 and following. He talks about this, this uh, river that flows out and kind of branches out into four rivers. The land is rich with natural resources. And then in verse 15 and following, it explains the second half of verse 8. So verse 8 had kind of two parts. There was a garden and there's man. So verses 9 through 14 explain the garden. Verses 15 and following explain man, humanity. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, where God says to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. It's kind of restating or kind of stating in in other words how God wants him to do that. Your job is to work. Your job is to cultivate. Your job is to create. Your job is to fill. Your job is to bring order out of chaos and to expand the garden such that it will fill the entire earth so that the whole world will be you know, drenched in the unmediated glory of God, kind of like the Garden of Eden is right now in this, in this moment. What's also interesting is the words uh, work it and keep it uh, are the same exact words that are used later to describe the responsibilities of the priests uh, in the tabernacle, in the book of Numbers. And so it's kind of setting up this idea that, that the Garden of Eden is a temple. It's a tabernacle. It is a place where God's glory dwells and resides. And Adam is kind of set up as the priest, the one whose job is to work it and keep it and, and guard it. This, is, this verse is also where we get uh, the Christian understanding of vocation and why it's good to work and why it's not good to be idle. <laughs> Right? God, God created humanity to, to, you know, be workers. God created Christians and calls them to, calls them to be diligent workers. God himself is a worker. He works for day after day after day after day after day after day, and then he rests. God is a worker. God created his people to be workers. And it's, so it's not like, you know, work is just a thing that sucks that we don't like that happens after the fall and after the curse that we just have to deal with and endure. A lot of us view work like that. Sometimes it's hard not to view work like that, depending on uh, your, your job and how you're experiencing it. But the reality is that work, uh, in its grandest and in, its, in, its, in the sense that it was created, work existed before the fall. God created his people to be workers. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be diligent at your job. It's bad to be idle. It's, it's, if you don't have a job, it's good to be diligent looking for a job. If you, it's good to be diligent starting a business, meeting needs, employing people, or raising children, or discipling them, or, or you know, caring for people that, that need you. Whatever work it is that you're doing, it's good to do it well and to be diligent in it. And whatever, and whatever you're, if you're, not do, if you're not working, if you're being idle, then that's, you know, an opportunity to, to kind of, lean into God's calling that he has given us to be workers. Verse 16, the Lord commanded the man saying, 
You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, Adam, here's this garden, here's this creation. Uh, you are the vice regent over it. You own it, you, uh, you know, rule over it, fill it, subdue it, exercise dominion over it. You are in charge of the garden. Here are your responsibilities. You have, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can rule in my place as my proxy. You have almost unlimited authority over all of creation, but... You're not the king. You, you have vast amounts of authority in this world, in this creation, but you do not have completely unlimited authority. You don't have total control. You answer to someone else. You are not God. You are a creature. That's why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right there, right in the middle of the garden, right in Adam's field of vision as a daily constant reminder. You're not the king. You don't make the rules. You answer to someone else. You are accountable to your creator. You are the the apex of creation. You sit atop the created order, but you are still a part of that created order. You are not the creator. You are a creature. God has built into human existence constant reminders of our creatureliness, of our not of our not being sovereign, of our not having unlimited power. You have limits on your authority and on your power. God created you to be constantly reminded of your limits and of the fact that you are not God, you are not the creator. And what we're going to see in chapter 3 and following, that's what sin is. It's pushing back against and hating and resenting and denying and refusing to accept our rightful place as a creature. Right? Refusing to acknowledge God's rightful place on the throne as the king, sovereign creator, and, and refusing to accept our place as a creature who answers to God, and instead saying, I want to sit on the throne, I want to be the king, I don't want to have to answer to anyone, I want everyone to have to answer to me. That's what sin is. And God says, you are not the God, you are not the creator, you are a creature, you have limits, you answer to someone that is not yourself. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, and I will make a, a helper who is fit for him. Right? So, so every, I mean, every day, at, at every point throughout creation, and God saw that it was good, and it was the morning, and God saw that it was good, and he creates humanity, and God saw that it was, was very good. This is the first mention in all of the Bible of anything being not good, right? God, like over and over and over, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. The first time we see that it's not good is when we're talking about isolation and, and man being alone. Man, man, man kind of being yanked out of the, the relationships and the community that he was designed and created to live in, that is not good. It's not good psychologically, it's not good emotionally, it's not good socially, it's not good spiritually, right? Relationships are kind of baked into what, I mean, I, I read a study saying that uh, every, it, it went through like dozens of different uh, like uh, walks of life and different people you know, socioeconomic, race, young, old, politics. It said every single person said that 
you know, I am less emotionally and mentally healthy uh, at the tail end of 2020 than I was uh, at the beginning of 2020. Because, because we, we were all kind of yanked out of the relationships that we need to live. And th- the, one, the one group, every single person um, you know, recorded a decline in their mental health. The one group who said that they didn't were those who attended corporate worship uh, ev- every week. Right, the, one, the ones who said, you know, I, I attend corporate worship, they, they had a slight uptick in their mental health. Everyone else, rich, poor, young, old, uh, down. Right? God creates us to be in relationship, and we, it's, that's like a part of what we need as human beings. And the reason why we were created to be in relationship, the reason why it's not good for man to be alone, is because God himself is in relationship. God is not Alone, God has been dialoguing with himself all through Genesis 1 and chapter 2. Let us, plural, make man in our image. God is, God is, we, we see God as a triune God from the very beginning of the Bible. And from all of eternity, God has kind of existed as a community of relationships. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, relating to one another, interacting with one another, loving one another in this, this um, perfect cycle of self-giving neighbor-loving, others-centered oneness. So when God creates humanity in his image, right, God is creating humanity to live in community, kind of like God is and has been living in community, experiencing life-giving relationships, experiencing the joy of loving someone else more than you love yourself, looking out for the needs of others more than you look out for your own needs. And so when God creates, until God creates Eve, when all there is is just Adam, that, that, that's not a thing, right? He doesn't experience, right? He doesn't experience the joy of being in relationship. There's, there's something lacking in Adam is not fully human, in a sense. There, there, there's a sense in which humanity was not fully human until Eve was there. There's a sense in which uh, Adam did not fully bear God's image until Eve was there with him, right? Male and female, they bore God's image together. Which is, you know, just an... Uh, yet, yet another of a long, yet, yet another example of, of just a multifaceted case that the Bible makes for church membership and for being a part of a local church. This idea of I'm going to read my Bible and pray and listen to podcasts and not go to church and not be a part of a church is completely foreign to the Bible from the very first pages. Because God created humanity to know Him in the context of relationships with one another. So, in verses 19 and 20, God brings all of these animals and birds to Adam to see if there's a suitable helper for him. And while he does it, he says, uh, he he asks Adam to to give names for all of these animals, further reinforcing the idea that Adam is the vice regent who rules over uh, God's creation. He names them, right? Adam is the arbiter of what these animals are going to be called. But, but for Adam, there was not a, help, a helper. But for Adam, there was not found a helper who was fit for him in verse 20. So every single animal is brought to him. He rules over them by giving them a name. Uh, you know, God determines that there's not a helper fit for Adam. And so God then makes, uh, you know, makes, especially creates Eve also in his image like Adam to coexist with Adam and to help him. The word helper, right? But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Uh, can be a, it can carry some baggage in 2021. 
right? The help, right? Someone who's like beneath me or lower than me. If you, you know, te- like, you know, the, the feminist movement is not a big fan of the idea that, that uh, you know, the Bible relegates females to the position of helper. That's regressive. That's patriarchal, right? Chauvinists, right, read this and say, right, see, I'm, I'm in charge, right? You be quiet. You do what I tell you to do. If I want your help, I'll ask you for it. You're the, you're the help. I'm in charge, which is not what this word help means at all. If you, if you look at, so this word for help in Hebrew in verse 20 and following, um, it has less of the connotation of an inferior, subservient person who does what they're told by the person in charge, and it has more the connotation of coming alongside and meeting a profound need that the person uh, could not meet in and of themselves. More, it almost, it's almost you know, more, more connoted as um, you know, a savior or, a, or uh, to a rescuer. As opposed to as opposed to helper, right? You're, you're someone's drowning at sea, and you throw a life preserver because they're about to go down. You throw them a life preserver, and that's that life preserver helps them outside of the. So Genesis two, both of these kind of refer to females helping males. But if you look at the Hebrew word for help at every other place that it exists in Scripture, almost all of them, the word help refers to God Himself coming to help His people. Psalm 33, it says, God is our help and our shield. Psalm 70 says, God is my help and my deliverer. Deuteronomy 33 says, God rides on the heavens to help his people and on the clouds in his majesty. Right? The story of the gospel is the story of our sovereign God drawing near to broken sinners and, and helping them. So when we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that women were called to help men, it's not a lesser calling or a task for those who are inferior. It's a responsibility that is embraced, <coughs> that's embraced by God himself and that is uh, you know, taken up by Jesus on our behalf. <coughs> so verses 21, 22, they determine that nothing else in all of creation can serve as a suitable helper for Adam. God creates something brand new out of the same exact essence, the same substance as man. He puts Adam to sleep <coughs> and causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. And then he takes one of Adam's ribs and he closes up its place with flesh. And so, so God, uh, you know, uh, Adam puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, uses it to fashion Eve, brings Eve to uh, Adam as humanity's first, uh, first woman. Adam's side is pierced, and, uh, and out, of, out of this, he's wounded. Out of, this, out of this wound that is given to Adam by God comes a bride that he would live with and covenant with, which is kind of meant to... Sound familiar, right? If you understand biblical theology and you understand the story of the gospel as it kind of comes to fruition in the New Testament, you recognize that Jesus himself in John 19, his side was pierced. And, and out of Christ's death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins that he secured for his people, Jesus creates a church, his bride, that he will live with and covenant with. Adam is wounded and it results in his bride, Eve. Jesus would later be wounded and it would result in his bride, the church. And Adam wakes up and he sees Eve and hears his response in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. Right, so, so Adam gives, uh, names every other animal in all of creation as a sign of authority. Right? You're an animal. I'm a human. I have dominion over you. I have authority over you. So I'm going to call you dog, giraffe, turtle. Right? Because, I said, like, like, because I said so. Because I'm in charge. I have a delegated authority from God. But his naming of, of the woman is different than all of those other names. His naming of the woman is, is not out of a sense of domineering, I'm over you. It's out of a sense of uh, like love and, and almost like um, being taken aback at how we are the same. This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You're from me. You're a part of me. Nothing will ever come between us. I love you more than anything in the world, and this is your, your name. She should be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Which is interesting because this doesn't particularly apply to Adam or Eve because they didn't have any parents. Like God, God created them out, you know, especially, so they didn't have a human mother or father. So this is kind of a, uh, Moses inserts this uh, kind of as a, a commentary on how this, you know, first story of our first parents, the first married couple would kind of inform, you know, people that would come after them. Once you get married, your spouse is your primary concern, more so than your, your parents, more than anything else in, in creation, right? Men are called to take care of their wives. Men are called to provide for their wives. Men are called to protect their wives. Wives are called to love and come alongside and help their husbands. Your spouse is your... Pro- a lot of marital conflict comes from failing to understand this verse, right? And a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, right? A lot of marital conflict comes from saying... I want to be married, I want a spouse, but I don't want to prioritize my spouse. And I, I, I want my spouse's needs and preferences to be second place behind something, right? I love my spouse, but I love my parents more. I love my spouse, but I love my career more. I love my spouse, but I love my idea for where I want to go with my life more than, than them. And God says, you know, leave, leave all, right, right, the, this kind of gives rise to a criticism, right? That's not the way my mom does it. Why can't you be more like my mom? Why can't you be less like your mom, right? So all of the kind of marital conflict and criticism comes from failing to understand that, that when you get married, something, a switch flips, like you, you kind of go from being, uh, you know, your parents are someone that you care about and are concerned about. They are maybe your primary concern, taking care of them as they get older. You get married and something flips. You grow up, you... Be responsible, you work hard, you move out, you start paying your bills, you live within your means, you marry a spouse, you hold fast to them, you commit to them, you stay with them, you're faithful to them for the rest of your life. That's God's pattern for humanity. So you live under the authority of your parents, and then when you get married, your spouse is now your primary concern. They're the person that you care more about than anyone else in the world, including your parents. Verse 25, and then the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? So, so a picture of perfect innocence in the garden, 
Sin doesn't exist. It's never happened. There's nothing bad or scandalous or risque uh, about this. Adam and Eve are together. They're married. There's no such thing as sin or sexual immorality. It's perfect harmony, total innocence, total openness, honesty, transparency. No one's hiding anything. There's no guilt and there's no shame. And that is kind of the, the state of the union. That's what God, that, that's how uh, existence was when God created his people Man, woman, together with God, enjoying God's creation, naked, not ashamed. And that's kind of where we'll leave things off uh, for this week until we jump into chapter 3 next week and look at the fall and look at when sin enters the world. So, I want to close, I want to wrap up by just uh, pointing out a few implications for the doctrine of the image of God in our lives today, right? A few ways in which the the reality that we as human beings were created in God's image, how does that affect how we relate to God? How does that affect how we relate to our neighbor? And how does that affect how we relate to the rest of creation, the rest of the the created order? So first, like I mentioned, how we relate to God, right? Human beings, by virtue of having been created in God's image, have unique responsibilities for how we relate to God. Right? Like Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? So, so everything else in all of creation besides humanity glorifies God to its maximum potential simply by existing. Right? Tree, flower, river, mountain, elephant, whatever, right? As long as they're existing, they are pointing to God, they are glorifying him, but humanity has these special, unique, image-bearing qualities that nothing else has. And because of that, if we want to glorify God to our maximum potential, then we need to not, not just exist, but specifically uh, exist and respond to God as he has called us to respond with repentance and faith. Right? God calls his image bearers to turn from sin, recognize where we have rebelled against him, recognize where we have sought to be our own king, and turn from it and trust in, in Jesus. Right? Look to God and say, I've sinned against you, I've broken your laws, I've walked away from you, I deserve your wrath, and I'm asking you for your mercy. Please come and save me and keep me and hold fast to me because I cannot save myself. That's how, that's how image bearers are called to relate to God, right? Everything else that doesn't bear God's image relates to God just by existing. Image bearers relate to God by turning from their sin and trusting in him to save them. Next, how the doctrine of the image of God informs how we relate to all of creation, everything that's not human, right? Like we said before, uh, being created in God's image means that we are a vice regent of God. It's someone who was, was called by God to rule over creation in God's place, which means that um, God has called us to be good rulers, godly rulers, wise, benevolent rulers. God has tasked human beings with being stewards over God's world, caretakers of God's world. So that means we're responsible for what happens. If you, if you have kids that are ages five and under and you hire a babysitter and go out to eat and you come back and they're all playing with matches in the front yard and your house is burning down, you're looking at the babysitter and saying, why did you, I put you in charge. I left you with a delegated authority. Why did you, why were you irresponsible? Why did you abuse uh, the, the, the you know, authority that, that I gave you? When God, God is going to hold human beings accountable for how they interact with and rule over and steward and take care of God's creation. 
means it's wrong to you know, abuse it. It's wrong to act unilaterally without regard for the, effect, the effects that our actions have on God's world because we're to be good stewards and good rulers over God's world. So, the image of God affects how we relate to God. We repent and believe the gospel. It affects how we relate to the creation. We, we're stewards of it. We take care of it. And it affects how we relate to our neighbors, to other human beings. Because, because we're called, right? The, the, the reality that we were created in God's image and that our neighbors were created in God's image means that we have a responsibility to recognize that in every other person that was created in God's image and to treat them with a corresponding dignity, right? This is why murder is wrong, right? It's why it's okay to kill a cow and eat it. It's why it's okay to cut down a tree, fuel a fire, build a house, but it's not okay to murder a person, because, because human beings were created in God's image, their life is sacred, their life matters to God, and it should matter to the people of God. This is why abortion is wrong, right? The taking of uh, the life of an unborn child, right? According to Psalm 139, God is the one who knits people together in their mother's womb. God makes people carefully and intentionally from the moment that they're conceived. God loves them and cares about them. God's people are called to love and protect and care for our unborn neighbors. Not kill them because it's inconvenient for us. This speaks to race, racism, xenophobia, ethnocentrism, right? Christians cannot treat other human beings as lesser or inferior. Christians cannot tolerate a society that oppresses people on the basis of there being a different race or ethnicity or nationality. Black people bear God's image just as much as white people. People from other countries bear God's image just as much as people from America. People who don't speak English bear God's image just as much as people who do. The doctrine of the image of God means that Christians should not tolerate racism. It speaks to oppression. Right? Christians cannot take advantage of others. They can't exploit them. Right? Christians are called especially not to exploit or take advantage of people who are in a position of vulnerability, whether they're minorities, women, children, people with, with disabilities. Right? Christians are called to uh, recognize and look out for, recognize the image of God in their neighbors and look out for, for them speaks to sex and sexuality, right? A big part of Genesis 1 and 2 has to do with male and female and sexuality. God created us in his image to reflect him. God is holy. God is pure. God is faithful to the covenants that he makes. So part of what it means to be created in God's image means to be holy and pure and faithful to our covenants like God is. Adultery is not wrong simply because it destroys marriages. Adultery is wrong because uh, it's, it's, unf- it's wrong to be unfaithful when we were created in the image of a God who is faithful. Right? When someone is unfaithful to their spouse, they're lying about who God is. If God created all people in his image, then Christians cannot, you know, they cannot uh, throw themselves into other forms of sexual sin, objectifying or dehumanizing people through lust, pornography, sexual misconduct, exploitation, right? You can't treat another person as if the sole uh, object of their existence, the sole purpose of their existence is your own gratification because that's denying the fact that they were made in God's image, 
right? When God creates us in his image uh, as his image bearers, it means that we have particular responsibilities, responsibilities to God and how, and, and we're to honor him and worship him, trust him and obey him, responsibilities to creation, to take care of it and to look after it and to be its steward and caretaker and responsibilities to our neighbor, to love them, care about them, look out for their needs as fellow image bearers of God. That's what God's called us to. That's what Jesus has done on our behalf in our place as our Savior. And that's what we remember. It's what we celebrate together around the communion table. Is that God has created us in his image. Jesus came to us. Jesus became a person like we are people. His body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that the image of God that was marred by our sin could be restored in us through the person and work of of Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to take communion this morning during the last song. And it's an opportunity to just take a minute, take stock, remember the gospel, and celebrate the truth of the gospel together with your church family. Take a minute, remember uh, that, that you are an image bearer of God. Remember that your sin has separated you from God. Remember that Jesus' death has forgiven your sin and reconciled you to God. And then we eat the bread and we drink the juice together to remember and celebrate that reality. The, the elements are right here. They're individually wrapped. So during the last song, just come up, grab it, and then you can kind of eat and drink together uh, at, your, at your seat. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against that. It actually says that you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself if you take communion in an unworthy manner. So instead of taking communion, if you're not a Christian, we would invite you to take Christ, to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus and to to receive the grace that he is freely offering you in the gospel. Let's pray together. We'll invite the guys to come up and lead us in one more song. Lord Jesus, We thank you for creating us in your image. We thank you for coming to us to restore that image after it was marred by sin. Lord, we we thank you that you have given us a unique capacity to know you, not just as our creator, but as our redeemer. And we pray that you would help us to step into the responsibilities that come with being an image bearer. Lord, help us to, to trust you and obey you. Help us to be good stewards of the creation that you have entrusted to us and help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It's in Christ's name that we pray.